Welcome to Drilling Deep. Drilling Deep is a place where we do two things. We drill deep into the oil industry and the oil markets, the diesel markets, even though if things keep up like the way they've been going, they're not going to be too many people drilling at all. But where we also drill deep with an expert, either one of my colleagues at Freight Waves or somebody from the outside. Today, we've got Mike Bowden-Distel to look at the supply chain upheaval from the perspective of the railroads, particularly intermodal. Trucking has had a kick coming from resupplying empty shelves, though there are some signs that may be ending. Has intermodal gotten a similar kick? Mike's going to be here to discuss. But first, let's talk about what's going on in this whipsawing oil market. When I spoke to you last week, the price of WTI crude was about $21 per barrel. Since then, it did temporarily drop below $20. It never settled that day for settled at that number for a day, but it did drop below it. It hung around the $20 level for a few days, and then it soared on Thursday of this past week on news that President Trump is holding some level of talks with Russia and Saudi Arabia about ending the price war. This is to take place on Friday, April 3rd. At one point Thursday, it got up well beyond $27. The president suggested that there might be because of 10 million barrels per day in supply among a variety of sources, which would be a huge amount. But let's remember something. World demand is down anywhere from 15 to 20 million barrels per day as a result of the pandemic. There's a lot of moving parts to a 10 million barrel per day oil cut. The hardest, clearly, they're all hard, <laughs> but the hardest is what does the United States bring to the table? Donald Trump cannot just call all these people together and say, you all cut and our industry is going to keep producing as if there's been no change. The U.S. is going to have to contribute some way. The price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia exists primarily because the growth of the U.S. shale output had made really such a price war inevitable. There's just too much oil coming out of the ground in the U.S. for OPEC nations or their allies led by Russia to continually continually cut to balance the world market. So the U.S. is going to have to be part of any effort to trim output. The issue, though, you know, right now is far more complicated than just, yay, let's celebrate cheap oil. Cheap oil usually is a benefit to the consumer, but right now nobody's going anywhere. So it's not as if they're getting some great advantage to their wallet. Energy industries are having their underpinnings ripped out from under them. Their collapse is definitely having a drag on equity markets. So how does the U.S. participate in any kind of effort to bring the market into supply and demand? There is no federal government ability to tell producers to shut things down the way there is in Saudi Arabia, the way there, the way there is in Russia or so many other countries. There are literally thousands of producers in the U.S. Some of them have wells that produce just a few barrels per day. The only entity in the U.S. that has the power to reduce production is the Texas Railroad Commission. It's a longstanding body. It was sort of a precursor to OPEC in that it did have and still does have the power to tell Texas operators to slow it down or to shut it down to keep prices up. It hasn't done that in years because OPEC gradually took over that role as Texas production declined before the shale boom. But in the past week, two significant-sized Texas producers, Pioneer Natural Resources and Parsley Energy, sent a letter to the Texas Railroad Commission saying, hey, can you dust off those powers and maybe do it again? But, you know, can this work? It isn't certain that the commission might go along with this. There's one member who appears sympathetic, one who doesn't appear sympathetic, and the third one in the middle, the big swing vote, well, we just do not yet know where they're coming from. And even if they do that, doesn't that put all of the burden on Texas to do all the heavy lifting for the U.S.? What can North Dakota do? North Dakota has certainly had a surge in output. No, nothing quite like Texas. New Mexico's had a surge in output. They're part of the same Permian Basin formation that Texas is in that's allowed their production to soar. 
So the fact is that U.S. production is going to come down. It peaked at about 13 million barrels a day recently. Estimates are it will fall at least one to two million barrels a day on the collapse in price. It could be more, but there really needs to be a, a bigger role for the U.S. in any kind of Saudi and Russian effort other than, than Donald Trump coming into this and saying, well, you know what? Our industry is in trouble, so don't worry. You know, we're going to be down. That is not going to fly. But you know, This all sort of reminds me of the New Deal. One of the great forgotten parts of the New Deal is that FDR used to talk about ruinous competition. There actually were government bodies in during the New Deal that could stop merchants from pricing goods too low. I, I suggest a great book on this, uh, The Forgotten Man, written by Amity Schles. There isn't anything like that now, except maybe the Railroad Commission. So beyond that, how does the U.S. support such an effort? Maybe you can try to do something temporarily that's completely unconstitutional, totally illegal, and get away with it for a while to help boost prices. But is it sustainable? That's doubtful. I do want to say this. If you're a trucking company and you've been dependent upon the shale play, keep this in mind. You are definitely in for some tough times. But as somebody said recently about the shale, rocks do not go bankrupt. And shale reserves are not like conventional reserves. Conventional reserves, if you drill a well and then let it sit, it really damages the reservoir. Shale is not like that. If the price comes back at a certain point, and it will, shale can get economical very quickly. That's the problem that any international effort has at reining in production. That's what they're going to face. So watch this very closely because it's, it's, it's really almost unprecedented for the U.S. to be involved in an effort that at least at the beginning suggests it might do something to support prices. That is not what the U.S. is all about. But these are not normal times. Move on now here on Drilling Deep to talk about the prevailing story of the day, the week, the month, the year. I really don't know how long it's going to be the prevailing story, but I would imagine quite some time. And that, of course, is the impact from COVID-19 on how it's in, how it's hitting different parts of the supply chain. You know, we look at trucking a lot on this show, as well as the other freight casts, uh, the part of the freight cast family uh, of freight waves. Today, we're going to talk to Mike Bowden-Distel. He's FreightWaves market expert who focuses on intermodal rail and equipment. So he looks at the other sector kind of away from the trucking side and how it is being impacted by trucking and conversely, how it impacts trucking itself. So Mike inhales data coming from the rails and the oceans, and he shares that with the subscribers to Sonar, which is our market dashboard. He does that each day in the Daily Watch, and I'm proud to have my stuff alongside his. So, Mike, uh, welcome today to Drilling Deep. Great. Well, thanks for having me. I always like your show. You know, thank you. So so I've been watching what you've been writing over the past week. Well, more than that, but just let's just take the past week because I think like two weeks ago seems like another universe. <laughs> you got to do, do this very recent. But so you, I know you spent a lot of time looking at current numbers, the ones that are out there, and comparing them to 2008 to 2009 the Great Recession. So what you've seen so far, how does that line up with what you know of what happened back, you know, 12, 13 years ago? Yeah. And I'd say 12 years ago, sorry. So. Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, 12 or 13 years ago, I mean, 2008, 2009, I mean, really it was a situation where right after Lehman um, collapsed, it was it was just rail traffic all, all of a sudden started being down sort of strongly double digits and that, you know, you know, persisted through all of 2009 sort of most of the following year up until finally they were lapping, uh, lapping those comps later in the year. But, um, you know, during that time, you know, regularly the um, rail traffic overall was down 20 to 25%. Um, and that was even before, I think a lot of the 
um, you know, full impact from low natural gas prices had on coal. So, you know, what we're seeing so far, it's, it's kind of every week of rail data is kind of worse than the last week. Um, in the last, uh, you know, week in intermodals down, you know, 14 percent, um, you know, not down quite that much in, 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 in car loads. But I mean, some of those th- some of those products are still sort of, you know, kind of in, in process, um, you know, type of things like you think about motor vehicles down. 60 something percent, which is, which is, which is shocking, but it's still, there were finished motor vehicles that still have to move to the dealer that, that ordered them and, and, and things, whereas the production has been shut down completely or housing products that are going to move to, um, you know, construction sites that are half completed, but there's not going to be a lot of, of, of additional, uh, you know, construction. So we're, we're unfortunately sort of headed on that, um, you know, trajectory that, that looks similar to, you know, the, the financial, you know, crisis. I mean, it remains to be seen whether it, it, it gets that bad or, or, or overshoots it or, or, or where we go. But, um, you know, for, for right now, the areas that have been most impacted have been, you know, international intermodal, just because of the, um, the, the sort of the extended shutdowns in, uh, you know, manufacturing facilities in China. Now, some of those have started to recover, but still not, not to, to where it would normally be. Um, and then, you know, motor vehicles already mentioned, but, but, but sort of, uh, you know, anything as, you know, related to petroleum is, is, or chemicals is, is, is just way off. And, and that happened pretty quickly too. Well, what was, do you recall what the trough was, let's say in 2008, let's say, you know, post Lehman Brothers, which of course was right after Labor Day, uh, 2008, uh, into 2009, what was the kind of worst year on year comparison for the rails? How much was it down from a week, uh, a year earlier? Yeah, I mean, 2009 was the worst year because sort of the financial collapse happened sort of pretty late in, in, in 2008. And I want to say that year, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I want to say that year was down something like 20 percent. So it, 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 it was down more than than you would you would think. I mean, there also there was a huge drawdown in in inventory. I mean, I think since then, you know, generally inventories have been run or run somewhat leaner than, than they have been. But but that was sort of the, the the worst year down in that range, and there were and there were individual weeks where it was down more like twenty five percent. So it was, it was really kind of shocking how how quickly how, how much it went down. Um, but then the, the the rails I thought did a pretty extraordinary job in terms of right sizing their cost structures and workforce, um, and, and actually I thought held up you know better than than expected, which I think they're they're all sort of rushing to do now as well. Yeah, and you note that that was at the time when the shale boom in the U.S. was starting to really hit its stride, and you were you weren't getting much oil yet out of it, but you were getting a lot of natural gas, and it was starting to displace coal—a process that continues to today. Let, let me ask you something else. Again, looking at your your daily commentary in the Daily Watch, uh, you've noted that intermodal and long haul trucking indicators have tended over time to work in the same direction. And a pretty good correlation between the two. Now you're seeing them diverge completely. Can you talk about what the history normally has been and why is it uh, going off? I, I can't help but use this term going off the rails now. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of kind of unusual. I mean, just because everyone's buying patterns have shifted so so quickly. But but really, it's, it's you tend to think of long haul trucking and intermodal as being competitors, at least in lanes that are intermodal competitive, something like an L.A. to Chicago or an L.A. to Dallas, something of, of, of that nature. Um you know, it's, it's something where that's really anchored by those big cities. That's a long enough length of haul um, that, that have sort of those characteristics that that make intermodal competitive. Um, but really, I think you know what's what's happened with with a lot of the data is we've we've seen that you saw that big surge in 
you know, trucking volumes in March. And, and when, you know, we can break that down in sonar by the length of haul. And it was really the lengths of haul that were shorter than 250 miles where that the, 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 the primary surge was. And so it was a lot of moving goods from local distribution centers, local fulfillment centers to, to stores to restock shelves after the panic buying. Um, and, and then, uh, really the, the longer haul, you know, market, um, you know, didn't react, you know, quite as, as strongly, but now the longer haul market seems to have picked up quite a lot. So, you know, I suspect that a lot of the inventories that are closer in to consumption centers have, have been, have been drawn down. And, um, you know, like to, to get to your question directly, the, the, the longer haul trucking has, has outperformed intermodal, um, you know, really just because of the service sensitive nature of, 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 um, you know, people's needs right now. And it was just to get those goods, you know, quickly to, um, you know, stores to, to replenish shelves. And also most of the, a lot of the demand lately has been for refrigerated, you know, products, basically food. Um, and you know, that's much less, um, able to, to be moved intermodally. I mean, it's, it's intermodal reefer is still sort of in the, the nascent stages. Yeah. I was going to ask is, do you see intermodal getting any kick, from this uh, restocking of shelves, or is it just is it like a, a, just an act a party that's going on that they're not invited to? Yeah, I mean it's it's really they're really not you know Intermodal's really not participating in it. I mean in the, the last week, Intermodal units in North America were down fourteen percent. So uh, it, it's it's year over year, and, and you know trucking is is sort of maybe that little peak is 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 passed, but it's still you know significantly higher you know, year over year. And I, I just really think it's, it's due to um, the, the service sensitive nature of those, of those goods um, lately. And um, intermodal is being disproportionately hurt by reduction in, in imports. Um, and you can see clearly from the customs data that there are fewer containers coming in to, you know, places like the, the, the ports of LA, Long Beach, Seattle, et cetera. I mean, really all the ports are, are, are down, you know, at, at, at this point, some of, you know, at least past the bottom, but they, none of them have really fully recovered. It doesn't seem like. Yes. You watch container data very closely. What's it telling you right now? Well, I think it, it, it tells me that we're sort of past the bottom in terms of absolute, you know, containers coming in, um, you know, but it's, it's still, it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, Chinese production is fully, um, you know, going at full blast. It's, it's still, you know, some of the, the, the terminals at, at certain ports have, um, you know, taken days where they've, they, they, you know, basically, you know, days where they're, they're, where they're not working like Seattle. I think I've said every other Friday, certain terminals are not, um, are, are not operating. So, you know, those, those things are pretty unusual. Um, you know, but, but, you know, the, the, the West Coast, you know, ports were hit first. You know, that started, you know, a few weeks ago. Now the East Coast ports are, are starting to see that reduction as, as well. That's a, you know, about another extra two week transit time to get to the, to the East. So there's, there's just a lot less activity at the ports. And that makes uh, those markets less of, um, you know, less head haul markets. I mean, usually they, so, so they're, they're a little bit more balanced than they, than they typically be. Usually those are, are really strong head haul markets with a lot more freight coming out uh, than, than going in, but that's less true right now. Yeah. The, now is the drop off in freight now being caused by problems at the exporting nations level, like in China, or is it just a lack of demand here? Because there's such a long lead time now between yeah. when it would load in China and arrive here that you know give th th this this crisis is so recent 
that I'm wondering, is that the cause or is it just that essentially China shut down for so long that and they're only now starting to ramp up that those goods are only now uh, or the, the lack of those goods are, are now what you're seeing at the ports? Yeah, I, I think that's a good observation. I, I do think it's it's uh, you know, the Chinese manufacturing being shut down. And I think, you know, to come, it's going to be less demand from the U.S. consumer because, I mean, everyone's got to tighten their wallet with, I mean, these unemployment numbers last two weeks, 10 million, um, you know, jobless claims in two weeks. I mean, that's really amazing. And not to say nothing of the stock market contraction. So I, it just seems like almost, you know, everyone's going to be cutting back and uh, spending in some manner, but I think it's almost too soon to see um, a lot of that in, in in the data. I mean, I really think it's it's less um, you know less production in, in, in China, which makes you think that uh, a lot of those goods are going to be warehoused, you know, near the ports, places like Ontario, California, and you know maybe there's there's issues with you know const- constraints with you know amount of warehousing space and things like that. Mike, looking over some of the things you've been writing in the past week uh, about about everything that's going on. I noticed you made a reference to a difference in trade between Shanghai, Los Angeles, the, the route of Shanghai to Los Angeles and the route of Shanghai to Long Beach. You'd think that they'd be basically the same, carrying the same kind of freight. They're right across the water from each other. Um, I guess you can stand on the Long Beach port and look over to the LA port. But what you wrote was that they actually carry significant different types of, significantly different types of products. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's so much the, the different types of products. I mean, I think it's it's primarily, um, you know, the the port of Long Beach is a little bit more weighted towards um, towards rail, just given where you know some of the infrastructure is and with on dock rail and and, and those things. Um, so that one, uh, you know, is a little bit more just just weighted to, um, to 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 the railroad, whereas the you know port of L.A., you know, being further north, being a little bit closer to the most densely populated air, you know, portions of that region, you know, more of that freight uh, tends to stay, you know, right in that local you know area. Um, so a lot of that just gets um, you know short haul, you know, truck to you know a warehouse or, or or what have you. So there's a little bit of a difference in in you know where the 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 end destination is um and you know I, I sort of bring that up in that that um daily watch because there's been a little bit of a divergence where the the freight and from shanghai into la um you know seems to have held up uh better than than, than the ones on um you know, you know to, to, to long beach so um, sort of between the two it's just sort of one other you know reason why you know trucking volumes um you know, seem to be outperforming uh, rail volumes lately Another thing, of course, that's kind of saved the rail industry, and I would call save it, but has been a big benefit to the rail industry having lost all that coal movement because of natural gas is the movement of crude by rail, mostly out of, let's say, North Dakota or Canada to, well, it could be anywhere. It could be to the hub in Cushing, Oklahoma, uh, could be to the East Coast refineries, uh, could be to the West Coast refineries. But now you've got a collapse in oil demand. You've got the narrowing of the Brent WTI spread, and we won't go into that in too much detail, but the, the wider the spread, the better it is for the railroads, and that spread has narrowed quite a bit. Uh, are the railroads going to lose a lot of business here? Is it's not, not going to be a savior and, in fact, might be a business that kind of gets almost written off for not permanently but for a little while? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's it's there's just less incentive for – those companies to to move the the product at the lower prices and like you mentioned the the, the spreads are lower. I mean the spreads have to be pretty significant um, to 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 think about moving it by rail. Um, you know when there's a a, a you know, pipeline that's that's at all that's at all viable. I mean but but you know they think the good news is a lot of those rails have have you know viewed 
the um, the crude by rail you know um, opportunity is is really sort of one that's been a little bit shorter term in in nature. I mean, we've heard that from you know Canadian Pacific for um, you know a long time that you know they they always sort of you know are reluctant to invest too much capital in in in, in crude by rail, knowing that it can go away. Um, but I think a lot of the the, the rails. That, that do participate in that, you know, heavily, particularly, you know, Canadian Pacific, I think is, is probably the, the, the one that has the most impact on their financials. I mean, I think a lot of the rails were, you know, if not all of them, we're going to see them walk back some of the guidance they just put out in uh, January. Um, but that's maybe one that, you know, has to walk it back a little bit further because of their exposure to, to crude. Yeah. Even when they were building the crude by rail terminals, you think, wow, that's such a big investment. It's, it's huge. But they're really not that big. I mean, the amount of dollars put into a crude by rail terminal, let's say at a connected to a pipeline, were hardly massive compared to some of the other expenditures at a uh, at a freight at a, at a, excuse me at a, at a rail company. Um, let me ask you about data and what is your favorite data, uh, in the sense that if this ever turns around, and I shouldn't say if it's going to turn around, we're not sure when. What data do you think are going to be the the first things that that where you see this at? What what number are you going to look for that says, hey, you know what, we hit a bottom here and we're moving on? Yeah, I mean, I would say just in in general, the rail traffic when you exclude, um, you know, when you exclude the the items that are not uh, sensitive to the economy. So to take all all rail volume and exclude, you know, coal exclude uh, grain, uh, you know, that those are not economically sensitive. I would say even exclude petroleum because, you know, that's so influenced by some of these sort of factors that we've been you know, talking about and, and prices and, and things, and then just sort of look at it overall. And, you know, that that's a data that, that at least from the AAR that comes out, you know, once a week. And that, that gives you a pretty good picture of what's happening, you know, in the economy because it just touches so many different so many different areas, um, and and so that's a the, you know I think one to to, to look for is, is sort of rail volumes excluding some of those less cyclical uh, areas. Is the ethanol business a significant business for the rails? You know, I, I would say it's I would say it's significant in terms of yes, it's one of the biggest um, you know areas where uh, you know tank cars are are used. So it's it's the number one or two um, you know commodity that's moved in. In, in, in tank cars. So um, it, it's, it's, it's fairly significant. Yes. Yeah. Because of course, ethanol is a gasoline replacement. The gasoline market far more than diesel is cratered. A lot of ethanol plants shutting. So I would imagine that business is going to take a pretty big hit. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I, I think pretty much, you know, every, every uh, you know, commodity that the rails hauler is going to take a hit. I mean, I, I think just it's sort of some, you know, more so than, than, than others, but that might be in the category of ones that are more impacted. All right, Mike, you were a former equity analyst, buy side analyst uh, with Stiefel. Uh, what do you, what railroad, I mean, you're not an analyst anymore, but I'm sure you still have that in your bones. What railroads do you think are best to quit right now to, to deal with this downturn? Yeah, um, well, I was a sell side analyst, but uh, yeah, oh, okay. yeah, 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 I mean, I think, I think all the, the, the rails, um, you know, over the last, you know, few years, I mean, they've really demonstrated ability to, Redu- you know, reduce costs with with a reduction in, uh, in 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 volumes. I mean, some of these things that you know used to be growth areas like intermodal that have shown to not be growth areas. I mean, I think they've done a nice job of sort of reallocating resources. Um, you know, I mean, I think they're they're all in a, in a decent you know p- you know position in terms of just that they have had a lot of experience with the lack of uh, you know volume growth over the years. I mean, I would say maybe. You know, Canadian National Railway, I'd, I'd, I'd point out because they, you know, have some, 
you know, top line, you know, growth initiatives that, you know, maybe could, you know, counterbalance, you know, some of the, um, you know, some of the impact that, um, you know, so the vol- volume reductions across the board, you know, could have. So that's maybe one idea. And then another, you know, idea that I heard talking to, to, to Donnie Gilbert the other day, and he said the, 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 the brokers, um, you know, could have be in a very uh, advantageous position uh, pretty soon. So someone like a CH Robinson, okay, maybe they've really struggled with buying truck capacity in March because the truck market was so strong, but, you know, that could really, could really turn over here and truck you know, capacity could be very loose. So it could give the brokers just an opportunity to really buy capacity cheaply, expanding their margin. So I'd almost take a look at maybe that, you know, outside of the rail and into the, 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 the truck brokers as well. Once an analyst, always an analyst, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we want to thank Mike Bowden for being our guest today on Drilling Deep, talking about what's going on in the rails and the and the, and the, the oceans. Uh, we want to thank you for listening to this week's edition of Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Care family of podcasts on Freightways. I'm your host, John Kingston. Please join us again. <laughs>